Mark in his gospel has an awful lot to say about the crucifixion. In fact, it would be accurate to describe the whole gospel of Mark as the story of Jesus' crucifixion with the very long introduction. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, we find that his opponents planned to destroy him. And then the heart of the Gospel of Mark is found in chapter 8. Our text this morning is chapter 10. But chapter 8, in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter tried to rebuke him for that, and beginning in verse 34, he clarified who he was and what he expected of them. In verse 34, he said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He reiterates something similar in chapter 9, verse 12. Elijah's coming first and restores all thing, things, and then he shifts the focus where he wants it. How is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? This theme continues over in chapter 10, verses 33 and verse 34. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And then the next chapter, beginning in chapter 11 through chapter 16, verse 6, we find a laser focus on the death of Christ. Every bit of that is constructed and written to focus on how Jesus arranged his own death at the cross for the sins of the world. That's what we find. And so when we come to the Gospel of Mark, we need to keep it in that context and keep that in mind. Every subject must be interpreted in light of its relevance to the cross and to the resurrection. And that is applicable to our passage this morning in chapter 10, where Jesus answers questions about marriage. Marriage is to involve a crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, the good ones do, whether they know it or not. And that's what we find in chapter 10, where Jesus does address marriage, and marriage includes a cross and resurrection. A couple of our two-year-olds in preschool, Sunday school, have learned this, by the way. They've become friends, and apparently they've been having discussions about their future together. <laughs> and I heard in a conversation, the young lady replied to the young man, the two-year-old, that is, she called his name and said, I can't marry you yet. You won't listen to me. <laughs> I've got news for her. <laughs> if he ever does, he's faking it. Here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus addresses marriage and divorce and remarriage and adultery. And I want to make a couple of statements to you concerning these subjects. Number one, Jesus Christ is Lord of marriage. He determines and defines what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. He is Lord over marriage. The second statement is, if you have suffered divorce and are remarried, let me encourage you, reconcile with your past, but apply what we're saying this morning to your current marriage. The third thing, divorce is not the unpardonable sin, and I don't want you to feel like it is. 
And if you've suffered divorce, no matter what angle, the causes, the circumstances, you are welcome here at Beach Haven Baptist Church. Now, the text is rather easy to outline. There's first the setting, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus is teaching them again, as he was accustomed to doing. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. And so Jesus is constantly teaching, and this is Mark's favorite title for Christ. It is very important always to have a vigorous, laser-focused ministry of the Word of God. The second section begins in verse 2, and that is the question. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? The third section is Jesus' answer, and it's divided into three sections. He clarifies Moses. He appeals to the Garden of Eden. Then he applies this to marriage. First, he clarifies Moses. He said in verse 3, What did Moses command you? Verse 4, they refer to Deuteronomy 24, where they say Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. There were two broad schools of thought in that day, both circulating around the seminaries there in Jerusalem. One was exceptionally Uh, for its day, conservative, Jesus ends up being more conservative than that school, where they would allow for divorce only in the case of, uh, only in the, um, uh, in some very limited circumstances. But the other school is is the one that is uh, very prominent here, and they would allow divorce, a man to divorce his wife, never a woman to divorce her husband, under some very wide circumstances, even if she ruined dinner one night. My soul. (laughs) And Jesus retorts in verse number 5, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this this precept. Moses had actually said a man could divorce his wife for uncleanness. It usually is used in the Old Testament for immorality. They broadened the definition of that word so wide, it included silly notions and ideas. So Jesus says here, Moses didn't command you, even permit you to divorce. What he's doing, he's regulating your abuse of women, is what he's doing. These are the circumstances you gave God, and to protect the woman, he allowed you to give a certificate to her saying she's now free, because you have a hard heart. Then he returns to the garden. He appeals to the garden and establishes the experience of the Garden of Eden as the standard for Christian marriage. He said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. And you no more divide a marriage than you divide a person because they're one flesh. So he appeals to the garden, and then he applies it to marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Then he reapplies it in verses 10 and 11. Now, divorce for the sake of adultery and abandonment is not an issue here with Mark and to whom he's writing. It was an issue for Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. It was an issue for Matthew's community in Matthew chapter 19. So you find exceptions there that you don't find here in Mark. In the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. Not that he wasn't clear enough to begin with, but they're so dumbfounded that Jesus is countercultural, and he often is. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another 
commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What you don't find here are the exception clauses from Matthew 19.9 that allow for divorce and adultery by the word of the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 7, where an unbeliever abandons a believer. And those are two biblical uh, exceptions. So Jesus clarifies all of this. Jesus Christ set the standard for Christian marriage. And because this text is true, and because the scripture allows for those two exceptions only, you may be asking, how can I then have a Christian marriage? And I will say to you, it will revolve around crucifixion and resurrection. So we want to give this text some insight on the basis of crucifixion and resurrection. There are a couple of spiritual things you need to consider. You need to pray fervently from the moment you can utter a word to God. Preschool children need to be taught to pray for their future spouses and homes. We need to look to Scripture and go by the Word of God. We Christians do not marry unbelievers or uncommitted so-called Christians. We seek godly counsel. But then there's some very practical things when it comes to marriage. Wildly practical. We begin by surrendering to the Lord and saying, God, I'll marry whoever you want me to marry within the boundaries of your word. And then we get hyper-practical, and then we look for a sense of peace from the Holy Spirit. This is from the beginning, because if it fizzles in the finish, it was probably at fault from the first. And I found that often to be the case. So there's some things then to crucify and other things to resurrect. And the first is this, crucify individualism, resurrect family. In other words, don't think merely of yourself and the romance and the husband-wife relationship. Broaden and expand it when you're looking for a spouse to children and family and in-laws. It reminds me of the four men that were sitting in a labor and delivery room waiting for their wives to get birth. Now, decades ago, men were not allowed into the labor and delivery room. It was uh, uh, figured that they'd be too much trouble there and a distraction. And so they had to sit outside in a waiting room. And there were these four men sitting in a Minnesota waiting room. And the nurse came out to the first man and said, Congratulations, you've had twins. And he said, Wow, what a marvelous thing. I work for the Minnesota Twins baseball organization. She comes out a few minutes later to the next fellow and said, You've had triplets. He said, What a surprise. I work for the 3M Corporation. She came out to the next fellow and said, You've had quadruplets. He said, that's a marvelous thing. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. And the next man next to him passed out. <laughs> when they brought him to, he said, they said, what's wrong? He said, I work for 7-Eleven. <laughs> I understand that the romantic, committed, loyal love relationship between husband and wife is very important, but we have done a terrible disservice to American singles by focusing culturally so much of their attention on that to the exclusion of children and family. You need to understand something. Here in this text, Jesus sandwiches the issue of marriage between two slices of children. Back in chapter 9, verse 36, he talks about children. Then verse 42, and then he gets into marriage. And then verses 13 to 16, he talks about children and blesses them. Marriage is sandwiched between two slices of children in this text. 
And you must understand if you're single, you not only marry a person, you marry a family. And you've got to understand that when you approach this, you've got to give, of course, due consideration to the romantic relationship, but you've got to give equal, if not more, attention to these questions. Not only would this person be a good husband or wife, but would this person be a good father to my future children? Would this person be a good mother to my future children? And then, do I want to have to relate consistently to his mother and his father or her mother and father and brothers and sisters? Because when you marry, you marry into an entire family and that family will have an awful lot to do with the happiness and the joy and the sorrows of your life and your family. So in reality, you marry not merely an individual, you marry an entire family. And that is why historically, and even today in most cultures, extended families insist on making the choice for singles of who they'll marry. I'm not suggesting we go back to that, but as a pastor, I require, I require singles that I marry to have the blessing of their family before we move to the wedding date. If they don't, then we back off a little bit and give it some time because there's no need to marry with so much confusion in a family. But family's got to be involved in the decision. So you cannot think merely as an individual. You've got to think in terms of family. But there's a second thing. Not only crucify individualism and resurrect family, but crucify worldliness and resurrect lordship. Jesus gives another version of Matthew 5.13 and verse 50 of chapter 9. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Jesus here used salt in much the same way the rabbis used it. And that is, salt would preserve meat in those days before refrigeration from deterioration and corruption and spoiling. And that's what we do in this culture and society. We are people who... Uh, preserve society and families and institutions from corruption and from decline. And so before you ever consider marriage, you've got to be a person who is on fire for Jesus Christ, salted down with purity and holiness. But too often that's not the case. Too often what happens is that after high school graduation, too many of our teenagers in our churches drop off and do not return until after marriage and children when so many of them have made a terrible mistake in who they've married. And so it is during the time of singleness outside of mom and dad's constant protective watch and gaze that you've got to give yourself to Jesus Christ and follow him with everything you've got. Because here's a spiritual principle you've always got to keep in mind about knowing and doing God's will. And that is this. To know God's will for the future, you must do already what you already know to do of God's will. Now let me repeat that and rephrase it. If you want to know God's will for the future, you've got to do God's will of that which you already know. Whatever God's already shown you, you've got to do or God's not giving any more. To him who has, more shall be given, but to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So if you want to know God's will for the future, for a spouse, and for other decisions, you've got to do what you already know is God's will. What is God's will for your commitment and service in a local church? Do that. What is God's will for your purity? What is God's will for your immersion and obedience to the Word of God? 
What about your praise and your honor of Him? What about your financial circumstances? What about these other areas of life? Long before you ever take someone and take their little red wagon and latch it to your star, yours better be rising in the will of God. And so you crucify worldliness and resurrect lordship. There's a third thing. Crucify divorce and resurrect solutions. No marriage is perfect. And since the Garden of Eden, there hasn't been one that's ever been perfect. God puts two people together so that they may mature one another. In fact, those things in your spouse's life that aggravate you the most may be the sandpaper God wants to use to rub off rough edges from you. And that's why he's got you together. I, I subscribe to the warp board theory. You find a couple of warped boards out in an outbuilding that have been sitting and weathered for a while. Well, they get warped. And the way to straighten them out is to place them in water and put pressure on both ends and let them stay there for a while. And that's what God does in a marriage. God takes two warped people and puts them together and puts pressure on their life. And out of that pressure surfaces the weaknesses and challenges that, on which they need to give some attention. And so what happens so often is that God puts people together that are suited for each other and oftentimes they think, well, we are exactly the opposite. Look, let me just tell you what, man, woman, you can't get more opposite than that. And then you take all the other personality uh, uh, factors and the background factors, put them together, and God does that. So you need to understand, there are very few marriages which are constant, smooth sailing. And they don't have to be to be effective and to work. God's brought someone into your life to make you more and more like Jesus. So what aggravates you most about your spouse may very well be the thing God wants to use to smooth out the rough edges and to grow you. So crucify divorce and resurrect solutions. But there's a fourth thing to do. Crucify resentment and resurrect forgiveness. Elizabeth Elliot in her book, uh, Passion and Purity, said, you married a sinner and you have no choice about that. Neither did your spouse. You married a sinner and so did your spouse. A, a marriage, then, is a faithful partnership of two great forgivers. And it has got to be. If you want the kind of marriage that God wants you to have, you need to heed what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. The thing to do is to master forgiveness. Everyone that wants a solid, effective, uh, fruitful marriage must have a Ph.D. in forgiveness. We've got to have that. Be people that forgive. In fact, forgive your spouse as much as you want God to forgive you. And Jesus said a relationship with God will not be restored and made fruitful and close and intimate until we grant that forgiveness to other people. Crucify resentment then and resurrect forgiveness. Now one of the many reasons Jesus is so firm on this marriage, remarriage, uh, divorce issue is that marriage is to model and demonstrate in very practical, vivid terms his relationship with believers. In other words, a man and woman are to be united to one another for life because Christ is united to his followers for eternity. 
And he wants children to see that. And, and so we are united to one another for life because he's united to us for all of eternity. And Jesus Christ never divorces one of his followers. Once you are in grace and once you are in salvation, beloved, thank God you are there forever and can never, ever lose it. And so Jesus wants that modeled and demonstrated before the earth, before the world, and before families in the marital relationship. In John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And now today, the Lord Jesus Christ invites you into that eternal union, and he will allow you in on it if you will forsake all other gods and foolishness and all other loves that are primary in your life and make him number one and trust his grace that he demonstrated at the cross and in the resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you'll come today, Jesus Christ will do that for you. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together about it. Our Father, we want to thank you for marriages, the dozens of them in this church family, that have reached 50 years or more. Thank you for the ones that will reach that as well. And thank you for how they demonstrate the wisdom and the power of crucifying sinfulness and resurrecting godliness in life. And I ask today that friends will cherish and clutch to biblical wisdom and flee foolishness and carelessness so prevalent in our world. Lord, I plead with you to bring to yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit the lost and to that eternal union with the Lord Jesus through faith in him. And I pray that you would enable the rest of us to walk obediently with you. As you keep talking to God, our staff is going to be here at the front. If you're ready to step into that eternal union with Jesus Christ, that faithful union full of love, then we want to invite you to come. If you're willing to forsake all other gods, all other loves, and you're willing to embrace and trust him alone, you come. Others of you need to come and become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. You've done that. You followed him in baptism. Others of you who have established that union with Christ, but you need to follow him in baptism. We want you to come as well. But Tim's going to lead us, and you come. Let me finish my prayer, and then he's going to lead us. Father, would you please get for your son in this time all that you want him to have for his glory and his name. Do not let a single soul rest until all is on the altar laid before him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tim, lead us and you come.